Hello and welcome everybody once again to another episode of The Gaming Moguls, the only gaming podcast where you've got a one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi to make your move or else we're going to rage quit on you. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how you doing? I am doing wonderfully, Mark, and I'm doing so wonderfully because I was in Mexico all last week for a wedding, so I am very relaxed, Mark. It was great. Yeah, that would certainly do it. Likewise, too, I had a weekend away filled with gaming, so Correct. it was a great yes. getaway. Might as well use this as a quick example to talk about episode frequency. Indeed. Mark and I, and, and I apologize for speaking for you here, but we always just want to make this a casual thing that is really easy for us to do, so we always enjoy making it. So our statement here is we will have an episode at least every two weeks. It most likely will be every week, but hey. Life gets in the way sometimes. So, yeah, I think we've actually been slightly misleading through episode 12. We have made a point of trying to do a sprint in order to build up a nice long library of episodes so that we had a back catalog. I was intending that once we had a back catalog built up, we were going to just slow it down a quarter of a notch, just a little tiny bit to be able to maintain it long term. And now that we've got 12 episodes in the can, we're looking at this saying, all right, now we're going to settle into what our actual plan is. And our actual plan is still going to be often an episode every week, but it's going to be one every two weeks at the latest. Got it? Yes. Perfect. So speaking of getting away and having a nice, fun trip away, hey, Jake, can you think of any place better to go than Minnesota in January to play games? No. Minnesota's garbage in January, and the reason why we live here is for the other months, not January. January is one of the bad ones. Oh, Pasha, speak for yourself. I love the winter. Oh, I disagree. But we are going to try to bring the beautiful coldness that is Minnesota winter to more people. So we're going to try to have, as we briefly talked about in the last couple episodes, but we're going to try to put on a little convention called MogulCon. The update here is we are forming a committee of our close friends to make sure that they get a, a seat at the table when it comes to planning this thing, because it's going to be as much theirs as it is ours. And the timeline for this is it's most likely going to be January of 2020. Yeah, it is really, really difficult to pick a date to do something like that, because no matter the season you look at, there is something else in the way, no matter what right. it is. I mean, Minnesota in the summertime, forget it. 50% of people are at the lakes for the weekend, and you're just not going to get any of the locals to come out there. Um, you look at times like late summer, then you're butting up against Gen Con, and PAX Unplugged is in November, and all the other cons that are on the year-round schedule, it's virtually impossible to find a time that isn't against anything else. And you know what? Late January is really dead in Minnesota, so that's a great time to come up, and hey, we're spending all the time indoors anyway. Right. Absolutely. So you will hear some more information that'll be a little bit more formal here, but thought we get a little update. And just to kind of wrap up what is kind of our goal here with this convention is we're trying to make it a really big buddy con. We don't know numbers yet, but it depends on the interest, but probably less scheduled events, more open play, more kind of like the board game geek hotness room at Gen Con, if you've ever been. Mark and I spent a whole bunch of time there this past Gen Con, and we really liked it. So that's kind of the the mood we're going to try to make. Yeah, lots and lots of open gaming. And the other key thing that we want to do with this one is we want to actually get out of the Twin Cities. Reason being is we want it to be a little more of a getaway where you're at a con. And if you're doing it at a con at a hotel in Minneapolis, I mean, we're as guilty as anybody else in this one. If it's local in the cities, uh, you know, you got dinner to go out with with friends at night and you tend to leave and 
you know, we want everybody to be all bought in and go there for the weekend and just game their brains out. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Mark. It should be really fun. I have one other update based on something we talked about last week. When we introduced the mogul scale last week for our way of writing games, we didn't really have a great answer around one corner of that grid. That corner was the 5A corner. That, that would be the upper left where it's a lot of rules and very little strategy. And we sort of called that bureaucracy the game. It was brought to my attention that really what that is, is that's the Ameritrash corner. Oh, <laughs> We're putting our our foot down here. Well, okay. so I'm not actually meaning that as quite as derogatorily as it might sound, because if you think about it, a very thematic rich game in the Ameritrash genre is going to have lots and lots and lots of thematic rules in there and stuff like that. It's going to be highly tactical. So the strategy isn't going to be terribly deep and a lot of flavor in there and a lot of different subcase rules around that flavor. So as you get farther in that corner, it is probably going to be a more thematic and less rules engine driven game. That makes sense. Cool. Well, we both got a decent chance to play a lot of games this week. Why don't we talk about it? For sure. Jake, I unfortunately had to miss our weekly game night last week due to my wife and daughter being out of town and spending time with my son. And it sounds like I missed some dandies. You missed a wonderful few games, but why don't we talk about one real quick? I finally was able to play Grand Austria Hotel, designed by Virginio Gigli and Simone Luciani. We really like Euro games here. That's probably most of what I've played in my gaming experience here. When John was teaching the rules, this is John's February game that he planned to run. I know it's March, but we're giving some leeway. boy. (laughs) About a third of the way through the rules, I was looking at uh, Brent, our other friend there. And I just looked at him and was like, this feels like home. You know, there's a bunch of different cardboard shaped things. There were different doors in this game. And there was a bunch of different dice. There was a bunch of different action selection or action drafting spots that you put all the different dice on. It just felt like a home good Euro game. And it was so great to just take a load off. Yeah, there definitely is something to be said for that nice central Euro midway to mid heavy to mid light set of Euro games. That's comfort food. I mean, it's sort of the mac and cheese of Euro gaming. Correct. And it just goes down well. No, matter, no I agree. You, you know, it may not be as fancy and it may not be something that you'd see in a fine restaurant menu, but who doesn't love it? It was great. But I do think this one might be some mac and cheese with like breadcrumbs and peas and bacon on it. It was a little fancier than other ones. It was really oh, good. We're, oh, we eat, this is like lobster mac and cheese. Yes. Very upscale. So what you're doing in Grand Austria Hotel is you're a bunch of hoteliers, hoteliers, I don't know how that word works, but you own hotels and you're trying to get people to come stay at your hotel. And how this is represented is there's a bunch of different cards that you can come and have dine at your restaurant. Once you give them all the food they need, it's streusels, cake, wine, and coffee, very Austrian foods. You put them up to bed in a certain prepared room of a certain color. There's four different suits of the eaters, and there's three different suits of the room with one of the suits of the eaters being able to stay in any room. He doesn't care about a specific color. But it was really great. The other thing that's neat about this game from a mechanical standpoint is it's an action drafting game with dice, and you start with one person and you do a snake draft for each action. It was really cool. There's a very good comparison to this game, and I felt really cool halfway through it. I said Grand Austria Hotel feels very similar to Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Oh, I know why that is. (laughs) I wonder if they're designed by the same person. 
I looked up both the designers here also designed Lorenzo El Magnifico. Lorenzo Mag- sure. Correct. And it was it was great. I really think you need to try this one. I was really enamored with it. I thought it was really interesting what you could do with the uh, the action drafting. And I think it's something that we're going to play a lot. I told John right towards the end of it is please keep on bringing this. I really liked it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would say a lot of the same things about my my one playthrough of Lorenzo Il Magnifico. It just felt good. And that's why I put right. it on my list of games that I wanted to play more of this year and still haven't seen as of March 7th. We are only a, th- a fourth of the way through. <laughs> We're only a fourth of the way through. We'll be fine. You'll, you'll, you'll get it, Mark. About how long did this one play? Uh, it took a little bit of time. There's a decent amount of dine- downtime. We played it at four players in between each draft because it's a snake draft you draft first there's a lot of actions going on between there so you draft the action and then do the action immediately or is it Correct. one of those that you, you do take the action immediately, immediately. Okay, got from, it. from the way you we were playing and i apologize if we got the rules wrong but i think we were playing it right yeah it just took a little bit of time and the actions weren't that hard but you set up these big chains so for example if you take some food and you feed your guy and then your guy allows you to do an extra thing and then you get more food from the guy and then he passes on to the next guy. You can just keep on chaining actions through the visitors and sending them up to bed. Oh, neat. Yeah, it was it was neat. I really recommend you play it. I really hope John brings more often. I thought it was wonderful. And hopefully when you play it, we can actually talk about it in a little more in-depth standpoint than me describing the mechanisms. So for sure. Well, and I think in your recap to me, you may have even commented that you gave this one an eight. I did. I like this one a lot. It had uh, all the things I like. I might not suggest we play it with four again. I might say we play with three so we can alleviate some of the downtime. But it's a really good game, Mark. I think it's going to be one you're going to like. Yeah, I have heard it is a little bit high on the AP scale, and that's something you need to watch out for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it can even get worse, too, because you can pass out of your turn, but then you have to wait for everybody else to take their turns or for everybody to pass. So it can be Mm. a little long, but that's not that's not that big of a deal. You know, you just kind of try to stay on top of it. You try to stay polite and chat with people while somebody else is taking their turn and hopefully think about your turn. Yeah, that sounds great. So on the mogul scale, Jake, where would you rate this one? I think I gave it a three C. It might be a stronger three C than it might be like a three point five C, but yeah, it felt kind of in that wheelhouse of mid, mid-heavy, Euro-y, decent strategy to boot. It was great. And just for a brief recap for those who missed episode 11, first number is the rules complexity, one being zero rules, five being a lot, and the letter is the strategic complexity, A being simple, E being incredibly strategic deep. So it's kind of right smack dab in that uh, midway comfy Euro spot. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. It was a very significant milestone birthday for yours truly end of last week. And yes, as you're such, old now, Mark, we've always been old, but you're uh, officially old now. Goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah, playing the back nine of this century, unfortunately. Woof, fortunately, woof, woof. I don't know. <laughs> I did get a chance to go to a friend's cabin for a weekend of gaming. It's something that we've done for several years in a row now, where we always try to get away uh, right about my birthday time. The two aren't actually correlated, but I pretended it was this year, and he bought me a Trace Leche's cake as a happy birthday present. So thank you, nice. Phil. That was lovely. Yeah. And uh, it was three solid days of gaming in the uh, very, very snow-buried central Minnesota wilderness. There was eight of us up there, and we got a whole bunch of games played on this one. So right off the bat, I kicked things off, leading one of the uh, tastier space-themed midweight Euros that I played last year. This is one that I've always jokingly referred to as Castles of Burgundy in Space. And (laughs) after a further playthrough, uh, nothing has changed my opinion on that one game we're talking about is pulsar 2849 by vladimir sushi and check games edition 
It's a game that plays in eight rounds. You roll a bunch of dice, then you take turns drafting the dice. You then use those dice to select a a whole bunch of different actions that you can take. And like Castles of Burgundy, you can modify them up or down as well. You're trying to create uh, these star-based energy production things, these gyrodynes, and spin them up and getting them producing. So you can use those dice to move around the board and start spinning up gyrodynes, or you can use those to buy patents that give you power-ups or modify your dice or create transmitters. Or Boy, there's a lot of different things you can do in that one. And the uh, the ending is deliciously point salady. One of the things that's really neat about this game is there's a mechanism that after you roll the dice and when you draft the dice, you categorize them in like one through six order. Then what you do is you figure out what the median of that is, and if you're taking something left of the median, meaning smaller than the mid than the median dice, you get to choose to either improve your turn order or get extra technology cubes. If you take something that's right to the median, meaning that you're taking a higher numbered dice, which is more powerful, then you actually have to either step yourself down on the turn order track or down on the race to get technology cubes. I think that's super cool and really gives you an interesting chance to manage all of that as well as how good of a dice you're picking. And I don't know of another game that does it exactly like that. Right. I've only played this once. I played it with you and Vince a while ago, but I remember liking it. I remember thinking you had a bunch of cool things going on. I didn't find the visibility of the like special ability tiles very readable. I didn't have my glasses on, so maybe it's my fault, but I just kind of ignored that and it worked out fine. I remember really liking it. I'm happy that you traded for this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just got this as part of a trade a couple of weeks ago, and this is my first go around with it. And the first time I've actually set it up because the other two times that I played it, Vince set it up for us. And, you know, I actually had to buck up and figure it out myself this time. I guess one of the strengths and one of the weaknesses of this game is there actually is a pretty fair amount of variability in the setup in terms of what goals you get and what patents are in there which side of the board you use, are there dead ends or not? And so there is a little more figuring out and setting up to do than maybe you normally would think, but that also brings a lot of variability into the game. So I don't know, horse apiece, I guess. Yeah, I I hope we can play it more often. I think it's going to fit well in our rotation of midweight euros. Yeah, and I think it's one of those that now that we have a, you know, another copy in the group, we're likely to have it on hand more often because I think it's one that Pretty much everybody in our group is going to like. It's a pretty solid infield double. Perfect. And the other thing, too, that I like about this game is it does not overstay its welcome. Right. It did you know, feel that eight brief. Rounds goes yeah. by. Yep. That eight rounds goes by quickly. If everybody knows how to play it, you can comfortably play this in 90 minutes. Hell yeah. That's great. That's exactly what you want out of a game for just to play for the right amount of time. That's Pulsar 2849 by Vladimir Sushi. I would give that a 3C on the mogul scale, right in the midway Euro category. I would agree. So the other game that we got to play, regrettably without you, Mark, on Wednesday was a game that I had traded for pretty recently and was really looking forward to playing. So we're big fans of train games, and I'm not as big of a fan of games that are train games that are not of the 18xx or financial style aspect, but I tried to try out a new one and see if we could like it. And so there was a new reprint recently for a 1999 game called Stevenson's Rocket designed by Reiner Knizia that I traded for. This one is done by Grail Games, this edition, and they did an absolute beautiful job with it. Ian O'Toole did the art, who is a very prolific we'll say, board game art designer. That guy is all over the matrix right now. He's doing he's doing big things. He's crushing it. So what this game is, is it is Stevenson's Rocket. Let's give a little historical example. 
is one of the first commercial trains, I believed. And it was one of the first like, yeah, like, like operated right. actually works trains. What you're doing in the game is it's a map of southeast England, right around London and kind of actually Midlands, too. And what you're doing is you're laying nine different companies tracks and having them set up in different ways. So this game is apparently compared to games like Tigris and Euphrates, another Reiner Knizia tile laying game. But this one was, from my understanding, more themed and actually does kind of replicate feels like you're running a train company a little bit more. So what you're doing on your turn is you're moving and advancing these little plodding train lines and moving your little Stevenson rockets. Each one of them has a very cute looking snail style meeple. It looks like a snail. It's just a wooden train. But you're moving them around, and by moving them, you get more ownership in different companies, and you can also run into stations, which then get you points and so on and so forth, doing all these things. But the really interesting thing about it is if you ever snake run into someone else's track, that company dissolves and gets merged into the company you just ran into. Hmm. And the way that it works is, so this is one of those teaches, I wasn't planning on running this game. I brought it just because there might be a chance that we'd run it, but a bunch of people bailed kind of last minute on the game group. And so I was planning to run some stuff that play six people, but regrettably we were just three. And I was like, hey, let's play this one. I've been wanting to play it for a while. It's been the shelf of shame and I don't really know much about it. I remember the rules being dastardly simple. And so I did a kind of quick top level what you do in the game and how you score. And so I teach all this and they're like, okay, well, why would I use this one aspect of the game, specifically passengers? That seemed like just kind of a dumb thing that you'd use as a consolation prize for something else. Then we realized, oh, that makes sense. If it's going to happen anyways, maybe it's a way for you to get something out of it, for example. Then we're like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, why would you ever do the merger? Because the company that you're obviously working on or have a lot of vested interest in is going to go away. And then they're like, oh, that doesn't really make sense. So maybe you just like you kind of try to outflank people. And then you realize, oh, no, I do want to crash this company into somebody else because then I can flip this ownership into the other people and I'll score some points. It was one of those experiences where I taught the rules and we kind of understood it. We embodied it pretty quickly with the iconography on the player aid. But then as we played the game, we kept on being like, oh, 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 I get why. And I really want to play this game again. Because it completely opened from a strategy standpoint very quickly after we played one round. And it was pretty quick of a game, too. I'd like to play it at four more than three, but I think we played it in like an hour. So I think what I've heard out of this game is that it's pretty tight and it's pretty nasty. Is that an accurate it's description? Mean. There's a lot of ways to interact because you can merge each other. So, for example, you can do something. And the other thing you can do is, okay. let's say I'm moving a company that you have six shares in and I only have three. Mm-hmm. And I suggest a move that's going to go X, Y, Z direction. You can veto that move. And by doing that, it becomes a straight bid. You need to win the bid. So you'll lose. You're actually bidding shares of the company. So you can lose ownership of the company, but you can have it do something else. Okay. For example. And so you could say, okay, I'm going to bid four, knowing that I only have three and I can't outbid you. If it's a tie, the person who did the turn get, wins the tie. But yeah, it was it was weird. Um, there's a lot. It's hyper interactive in that way where you're always kind of checking in on each other. And I think the reason why certain people did really well was we just kind of let them run away with it. We were kind of doing our own thing in our corners. And I think moving forward, you can kind of fly and interact in a more interesting way. But you're right. It's hyper interactive. You know, you, uh, you you lost me for a second when you said it's kind of like Tigris and Euphrates. And I know we probably we right. probably just lost listeners with that comment. Do not like that game at all. That is dry as dirt. But actually, as you went on to describe the game, I'm I'm back on board with it does definitely sound like one I want to play. But uh, yeah, 
Right. I think you'll like it. It does have shares. It's it's the same region as a lot of the same companies as 1822. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really good game. I think you're going to like it a lot. And it came with two extra maps in the box. So, well, hey, thanks, Grail Games. Re- regardless, I- I'm happy to see Reiner Knizia back on the map again and being talked about. Yeah. Heck yeah. Even though it's an older game. Happy he- it's getting played. Oh, it yeah. Was great. Really liked it. Exactly. The Mogul Scale. Where are you putting this one? I said 2C this morning when we asked about it just in our little chat. Yeah, and I think that's it. It's pretty simple mechanically once you know how to do it, but the implications of why you do that are kind of hard. So 2C, maybe even a 2D with time. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, it kind of sounded by what you described kind of on the heavy side of C. So yeah, Hmm. absolutely. There's a lot of stuff going on. It was fun. I got a chance to pull out a little bit of old hotness myself over the weekend, and I have a long background playing magic and played a whole mess of magic throughout the 90s. I don't so much play anymore. I don't really have my collection anymore, but I still get together and game with my old magic buddies. In fact, that was the crew I was with this weekend are the friends that I used to play a lot of magic with. And as such, I have always wanted to play Millennium Blades with those guys, and I have never had the chance up until this weekend. So I made a point of making that happen this weekend to sit Phil and Paul and a couple of other victims down to play the silliness that is Millennium Blades this weekend. Yeah, what they think? I would say that the enjoyment of the game was highly tied to a person's inherent analysis paralysis and like or dislike of real-time mechanisms. Okay, that makes sense. Yep, yep. So of the two Magic playing friends I have, one loved it, one thought it was novel and probably doesn't ever want to play it again. (laughs) But that person also really does not care for real-time and really likes to deliberate his decisions at length. So... This is a game that does not allow you to do that. little background, Millennium Blades is a simulator of collectible card games, meaning that the whole idea behind the game is that this game called Millennium Blades is a collectible card game that's been being played for a thousand years, and you're entering a tournament in this collectible card game that's the most popular one in the world. And it's a massive amount of tongue-in-cheek jokes about magic and every other collectible card game. There's a TikTok between having, I think what they call trading rounds, and then there's tournament rounds. So during the trading rounds, you do exactly that. You crack packs open, you trade with others, you sell cards, you buy cards at the store. And by the end of those real-time rounds, you are trying to build a collection and build a deck that you're going to take to the tournament. The collection you sell off for victory points, the tournament deck you then take to play. You flip over your player mat to the tournament side, and then you compete against everyone else at the table at your tournament. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a simplified CCG type idea. Yeah, you're just playing down cards and they get you like RP or VP or whatever. Right. You've got about, uh, what, eight cards in hand, plus a deck box and a couple of accessories that do special powers for you. Right. And you, you, the game is all in deciding what order you play those eight cards in that you spent your trading round trying to assemble. And then the one that actually wins that gets a certain amount of victory points and every tournament gets worth a few more crazy game (laughs) right it's a lot of fun i love it i know you love it a lot right well because this was originally my game this i think was the first thing we ever traded each other yeah it was a uh we traded your copy of millennium blades for my copy of mombasa yes which it was a good trade for either side i was fine giving it to you because i think it was one of those things you were going to enjoy more it seemed like i ran it when other people wanted me to run it not when i wanted to but right it's a really good game and i think it's fun and you 
since I've owned it, have added some content to it, correct? You have, we bought some of those expansion packs and stuff. Yep, yep, yep. And um, I'm also, I probably need to make a decision pretty quick here. There's currently a Kickstarter going on for uh, a very large expansion to Ooh. this right now. And I need to make a call on whether I need that or not. It's, I don't it's know. cool to have more, but there already is so much in that game. At what point is it just too much? Well, that is the thing. I mean, I have plenty in that box already. And this is this isn't a game that I'm pulling out and playing every week. It's a game that a couple times a year, it's really fun to pull out. And one of the big problems is there's a lot of assembly and disassembly to this game right. and a lot of setup. So what I've actually taken to doing is keeping what's called the store deck. What you actually have to do is you have to mix together eight expansions or something like that to make the store deck out of a possible 20. I think I'm just throwing numbers out there. But that takes time to shuffle all that junk together and to separate it back out. So what I did is I made a set that works together reasonably well, and I just keep that together so Easy. that I can pull it out and play. Yeah, that's way better than yep. any other way. But yeah, I thought it was fun. Yeah, I, I hope really we well. get to play it together sometime. Yeah, so all in all, I would call it uh, I would call it a success. Everybody had fun with it. But like I said, there was some people that didn't necessarily enjoy the real-time aspects of that one. Right, and I think that's kind what of part of the course, right? That is, that is part of the flavor of that game. Right. You know, perversely, though... That's Steven's favorite game. Right. And he gets very into not making decisions quickly is a polite way to say it. Steven is lovingly called the rain man of our group who wins all the time. And if Steven's listening, he just puckered. <laughs> yeah, this is not a game that you'd think Steven would love. And it's his favorite game. Yeah, it's an awesome one. <laughs> so, he wants me to bring it much more than I do. You should. It's a fun one. Yeah, for sure. So wrapping this one up. I'm rating this one a 3B. I'd agree. There's plenty of rules behind this one, but not a ton of strategy. I'd agree. And it's it's maybe not overarching strategy, but you're just making time decisions to try to figure stuff out. You do need to make snap decisions quickly and pull something together quickly. Right, but I find that fun. So speaking of I do too. head-to-head card games. Wow, it's like we ordered this on wow, purpose. Amazing. <laughs> um, I was able to play some Keyforge down in Mexico with a good friend of mine, and we played it out in the sun, and I got nice and sunburnt. It was fun. We've talked about Keyforge a bunch, but I thought I'd bring it up because I'm still liking playing it. I still think it's a wonderful game and I'm a big fan. Keyforge is designed by Richard Garfield and produced over by the folks at Fantasy Flight. However, I do have some sort of new takeaway. Interesting. Hit me. I have. I've So I've bought a whole bunch of decks for this game. I think I have like eight, which is probably too many, but I was excited and let's do it. Well, sure. I mean, the notion is 10 bucks a deck, get a whole right. bunch of them, and find figure the ones it out. you like. And, 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 and I, I talked so. with you about like maybe selling some of them at some point in time or figuring out what's, where you can do with the bad deck. So there's a range sure. for the decks that I like here. Let's make it on a one to 10. One being I don't like it very much. 10 being I love this deck. The standard deviation okay. for the decks that I own and every single deck I've played ranges from like, meh, it's probably not very good all the way to, eh, it's pretty good. It's not a very wide window of how much I like them. And I never love any of the decks. I'm reading this as like they, they, they're kind of falling into a three to seven range. Correct. And I will say the sevens are way better than the threes. Like, don't get me wrong. But sure, I sure. didn't bring any of my own decks and I was playing Eric's deck. And I thought it was a cool deck, but it was just like, oh, this kind of feels like other decks I've played. It's no big deal, which I do think in some ways does reflect really well on the game because it's not about just getting the best deck and playing it. It's about really figuring out the game and beating the other player with the tools that you have available. But I kind of wanted to be like, oh, God, this is my deck and I'm really into this one deck. And how does it work against this and how does it work against that? But it's more becoming not like that for me. I sort of wonder if you're not getting a case like, you know, the more dice you roll, the closer to the average you're going to end up with on every roll. Right. You know, so if you. If you roll one six-sided dice, you have equal chance of getting everything. But if you roll 10 six-sided dice, 
uh, you're going to average out to be 3.5. Right. <laughs> Over, you know, and so maybe so I just I wonder play if, too many decks, do you think? I also think it could be because I'm no, bouncing no, around. No, no, I'm just, I'm just wondering, given the card pool and the randomization of the card pool, that what ends up happening is eh, just sort of the cards all sort of average out. So really great cards average out with really crappy cards. And at the end of the day, you do end up with a pile of decks that are kind of somewhere in the middle. Right. And I will I say know. the I'm bottom end of somewhere in the middle it. is pretty bad. But like the yeah. top end, I don't know if I've played like a really good deck yet, if that makes sense. Sure. They're all just kind of kind of meh. the reports I've been hearing are that seem to feel that there's a wider swing in them. Some of the complaints I have heard from other people are that there is a big difference between good decks and bad decks and that that's one of the challenges is that boy if you get a stinker there are some real stinkers oh, yeah, out there and likewise sure too there stinkers, are some that are yeah. auto wins but so it's interesting that out of that many decks you haven't hit one that's pushed too far outside of the center range. Right, maybe I just need to play more and actually now they're now the Keyforge app actually tracks stacks per deck, which is something I wasn't doing before. So maybe if I spend some time and actually play games a whole bunch and play the same deck over and over and over again, I can actually finally figure out whether or not the deck is for me or what's actually good and what's actually bad. So do you have any data points on uh, average numbers of decks purchased per Keyforge player? That's one thing I'd be interested no in. Are most people buying two of them? They I think buying a sensible amount is I don't four to guess. five. And I okay. probably about double that. So I would say that, uh, you know, certainly you could try it out at a deck apiece. But mm, part of the fun play is it more variety, than once, right? Having a few of them. Because well, so yeah, you do want to have a little round robin. So I thought I would preach the good word that is Keyforge more. And I brought this up a lot. But I actually haven't done that that much. I've only taught you. And you've been the only person I've actually taught. Other than that, I'm just playing with people that mm. I already knew would be interested in it. I don't know why I haven't taught anybody in the group. But I know there's probably a bunch of people in the group that like it. I just never really do. Maybe I just need to do that. Because that was my plan. I was going to give them a deck. So if like XYZ friend right, joins, right. oh, you thought that was neat? Here's your deck. You can have this one. I wonder if that doesn't have a very almost a lifestyle component to it where even like, you know, magic or some of the other things that you got to kind of be interested in jumping into head to head card battle. Right. Games. I, so maybe it's know. the same thing. Is that maybe the fact? Yeah, probably. Which which I guess is a plink in Keyforge being a lifestyle game. It's not as accessible as we wanted it to be. Or maybe it could have been because I taught you and you weren't too big of a fan. So maybe it was just like, eh, I'm done with this. Moving on. Yeah, I don't know. Because like, you know, is my wife going to have any interest in playing a head to head deck battling game? Nope. Zero chance. Right. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. Well, that's enough Keyforge. We're we're trying to figure out a lot of things there. There's a lot of theoretical questions being asked. Maybe questions that don't have answers. Well, speaking of contentious card games, <laughs> bring on the next one. Apparently, we're not going to agree on everything this episode, but good times. You guys win for listening to us disagree. Jake and I did a little bit of horse trading here a couple weeks ago again, and he was selling a game that I'd heard a lot of people say good things about, and I thought I'd give it a whirl. I like auction games, and I'm interested in Jordan Draper games, so when Jake was trying to sell his copy of Turin Market for a very reasonable price, I jumped all over that one. And I really like little tiny box games, and this might be the tiniest box game that I own. I was very interested in giving this a try because I know that you gave it a, a real solid thumb sideways, which didn't line up with what I'd been hearing about the game. So I was very curious to hear it for myself and see it for myself. I got a chance to play it twice over the past week. John and I pulled it out last Wednesday night. We played it three player and I got a chance to play it five player this weekend at my gaming weekend. Man, I loved it. I can't say that everybody at the table loved it. The one the one we played over the weekend 
I actually won 24 to 0 to 0 to 0 to 0. Wow, so you really like it. I'm surprised that you that like might, it because <laughs> might, one of my biggest complaints about this game is something that you rip on another game for. I find the font nearly unusable. I cannot read or suss out what the heck those dang okay. cards are trying to say. Yeah. And the yeah. symbols yeah, all okay. weirdly That's look a fair the same, even though I know they're not, mm-hmm. but they're like all of their very similar art style and like saturation of color. Yeah, I think maybe the reason I can tolerate this one is there. it's a tiny game and there's so little information conveyed right. by font size. So, like right. literally, there's a pic, there's a picture of potatoes. And it's always there, a so three, two, one. You don't. So what you're doing in this game is right. we'll give a quick example of what you're doing in turn market. It's an auction game where you are bidding on things to try to be. I think you're just traders in uh, turn Italy. Yeah, I think you're just at the market right. in turn. And so what you're doing is there's going to be a couple of cards put out depending on the number of players and you're all going to auction on them and then. Depending on where you are in the auction, certain people pay certain amounts, I believe. Like if you are first, you pay all of it. And then second plays like half. And then so something along those lines of paying in. Mm-hmm. And then you get to get the cards. So if you're first, you get to get two. I believe in the four player game I played. If you're second, you get something. And third, you get something. But what's cool about these cards, they're all the same. There's a three, which is three of a certain commodity, a two and a one of a certain commodity of everything on there. So you have three different commodities of three different levels. And at the end of each round, whoever has the most of each commodity is the leader of that commodity. And at game end, you get a certain amount paid into that if you're the leader. So depending on the thing, let's say you're fig man and you have a whole bunch of figs and then there's a big three fig coming out, you might want to bid next turn just to buy that fig card. So it does do the thing that's supposed to be good in auction games where people have different vested interests in different cards and may bid for different amounts. So half the game is trying to suss out how much you think people are going to bid so you can win. And the other thing, too, is that there are different rarities of those commodities. Like there's 14 fish and there's only like eight or 10 figs or something like that. So there are different rarities and different values behind these different commodities in there. Where I felt this game really got interesting is the auction mechanism on what happens with ties. What happens if you tie, there's a rebid that goes on and whatever you rebid is added to your original bid. So let's say, you know, we're playing three players and somebody wins with five and two other people have four. The person that wins with five gets the first choice of the cards later on. They get to pick the best cards or the cards they want the most. The two people that didn't win each have to rebid and they add that amount to their original bid. So now they're most likely going to pay more than the person who won and they're not getting first choice. So there was a lot of cases where people suddenly found themselves in this just nasty spot where, okay, I bid twice as much. I ended up paying twice as much as the person who won the bid and I'm getting the last remaining card on there, which I don't even want. Right. (laughs) And and uh, I thought that was really interesting managing that one. I thought the decisions around managing when you could get loans and how you manage loans was super interesting. And at a five player game, you don't get to have everything like in, in the three player game we played Wednesday night. Everybody could kind of own everything. So there was a lot of just money passing around the table because at the end of the game, if you're not the leader, you're paying the leader one scudo. Yes. <laughs> Scudo is the, and you have to say it as a Scudo. You're paying a a Scudo to the person that is the leader besides their normal payout. And in a three-player game, everybody's got everything, and it's a lot of money just moving around the table. In a five-player game, you maybe have 50% of those, so there are things that you just can focus on and be the leader in those things and not worry about the other stuff. So that made it plenty interesting as well. 
what I found is that it definitely behooved me to go all in. Like if I'm going for something to go at it hard, don't go halfway. Just if you go halfway, you get stuck in that runoff for second and third place and you end up with a crappy card you don't want. So if you want something, go at it hard and take that. I ended up getting extra cards, which then I sold back to other people, which gave me extra money, which then allowed me to push people around even more in the auctions. And everybody else was bankrupt and I had all the monies. So what's the one thing we are not saying here? What is the main auction mechanism, though? Is it do you go around and bid each one up each time or what is it, Mark? You do not. It It is a single solitary bid. And as a blind it's a bid. blind bid that you put the amount of scudos in your hand and you say three, two, one, flip. And that's your bid. I think that's what I don't like about it. I do not like blind bid games. I like games bidding. I don't think I like blind bid games, especially blind bid games where you do pay something. So here's why that's great in this game. I thought about this one quite a bit. Why the blind bidding makes this game is it utterly makes it too expensive and too painful to try to hate draft somebody. So you see somebody building up a collection of something, they're going to win that one. You can't just hate draft them out of that thing because you can't just go, well, you're not just going right, to take that at three. You, you know, you think you're going to take that one. If you want that, you got to bid for real on it. You can't just bid one more than the low bid before that when people are running out of money. That really is what makes the game work. Because if you can just bid one up, you're not going to overbid something by accident. Whereas you absolutely can do it in this game. Oh, great. I just bid nine and everybody else <laughs> bid one because they didn't want it. Sweet. Well, I'm happy it's it found a good home. I'm happy that you like turn market a lot. Yeah, I think you need to give it a whirl with a higher player count because that's when it really came alive. But like I said, well, and we also we we might have been burned out on trading games by the time we played it. We had played the estates right before we played this. And so I was like, do you guys want to play another? And it was pretty simple, but I don't know if we were ready to go to that layer deeper of auction games. We were just, we really liked the estates. We liked what it did. And then this one was presenting a different idea in the same kind of feeling. And we were like, well, we don't really like this one. We like this other one a lot more. And so it just didn't really felt like it needed a spot on my thing. And to be candid, I forgot I pre-ordered it. So it just showed up in my house one day. It was really cheap. I think it was like 20 bucks with shipping. And it just showed up and I was like, oh, okay. And so I didn't really have a lot of vested interest in wanting it. I just remember being like, oh, this is neat. Sure. And yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I'm happy you like it. That's all. Yeah. And like I said, there were people at the table that did not care for it either. But I also think that they did not quite understand the bidding mechanism and how the runoffs went and what happens if you don't go hard at it. So they felt like they were constantly behind the eight ball and constantly losing auctions and not getting what they wanted and thus didn't enjoy it. But I think that's the delightful joy of that little game because it's short and it's mean. And I like that. It is. It is fast. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That was Turn Market. Where would you rank it? I am going to put that at a 2C. Ooh, I don't know if I agree with that. I might give it a 1B. 1B. Well, there was more explaining than there should have been for there. there. There's actually a couple more rules and they're not super well written. Yeah, maybe that's it. Well, isn't the rule book in a stupid font too? Or no, am I misremembering? Uh, I think you're misremembering. I don't remember. But gotcha. and the decisions are a little more painful than you'd think they would be. So uh, I I could I could argue yeah, it is a two B also. It's a light C. It's yeah, it's 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 a light C. It, yeah, it's probably a light two too. It's because if we compare this to like Stevenson's Rocket, Stevenson's Rocket, for example, I know you haven't played it, has more rules than Turn Market yep, for sure. Yep, uh, that's fair. I think I'm up kicking it one because the rules are more confusing than they need to be. That's fair. Totally. All right, Turn Market, Jordan Draper. You can get it on his website still. So look into it. Speaking of little box games, you played one of my favorites. I did. So a while ago, 
I was sent an Amazon link by our friend John saying, hey, look what game this is for $7. And I said, that's stupid. I need to buy that. The game we're talking about is Oh My Goods by Alexander Fister, one of our favorites, um, especially in the small box genre. Yeah, for 7 bucks, Holy and, cow, that's a, gr- that's a lot of games right, for it was 7 stupid. bucks. It didn't go on my shelf of shame because I already owned it, and it was $7. I just... I just wanted to have it. And so I actually took our own advice. And when I was in Mexico, I made my own case of holding. So I had six Oinks games in there and a whole bunch of other card games. This was one of the card games I decided to bring. And it went over really well. It's a fun game. I don't think I've ever played as poorly as I did this time. I (laughs) didn't do anything. It was absolute crap. I spent about half the start of the game just spinning my wheels, and it actually worked out okay because my friends were kind of wrestling with the mechanism here. But Oh My Goods is still a wonderful game. So what you're doing in Oh My Goods by Alexander Pfister is you are different German people that are making a little like community of different products you're manufacturing. A manufacturing community? Is that maybe what well, it is? Well, yeah. You're, what you're really trying to do is you're set, trying to set up a bunch of commodity converters, really. You know, you're, Correct. That's you're what trying you're to doing. get one commodity and crank that to another commodity, which turns into another commodity, which turns into something really valuable. So that right. a couple of little one value commodities by the time it spits out the other side is worth 10. Right. And what's cool about this game is it has a little bit of pusher luck in it. You flip over a certain number of cards until two suns come out and you do that twice. So you need certain inputs to turn on your little converters. And depending on what pops up in the market, you may be better at doing one building versus another. Well, but and it's a really neat and you're game. forced to actually wager on the outcome of that before it happens. You're actually supposed to pick on am I going to produce optimally or poorly? Basically, if you're producing optimally, then you need more of that type of resources. If you're going to produce poorly, you make less, but you need less as well. So the bet there is, is am I going to make what I need to run this converter before the two suns come up? Right. And it's it was neat. I, I thought it was really fun. I'd like to play it again because I just did such a poor job of it, of actually playing the game. It was fun. I ran it fine. and Everyone had a good time with it. But it's just such a good game. And it's such a good travel game because it's just cards. That's it. There's nothing else to it. The cards are the goods. The cards are the different production facilities. And the cards are also the actual physical representation of the commodities that you're manufacturing. It's a good game and it played quick. It didn't overstay its welcome. The one thing I don't like about it, it is kind of phasing. You have to deal out cards. Sure. At the start of the turn. And it does slag it down a little bit when it could be an even faster game just because you're like, oh, do you want to swap out your cards at the beginning of your game or the beginning of each round? You can swap out your hand for a complete new hand, which is cool. And it helps you actually play well, but it slows the game. down. Sure. Hey, one of the greatest upgrades to this game I ever found was once when I played it with you at my house. I have a casino card dealing shoe for dealing blackjack that I whipped out and loaded it in there. And that was awesome. (laughs) it was awesome yeah i just wish there was a little bit more cards here so maybe like if you could buy two copies of the game and shove them all Hmm. together so you'd have to shovel less but yeah that's an interesting idea just constantly cycling through that deck i don't know that is a game that i think is a embodiment of the old you never get a second chance to make a first impression unfortunately this thing was a little stillborn when it first came out and got a ton of bad reviews In the meantime, Mr. Fister came out and revised the rules on that one, made a 2.0 version of it, re-released it, fixed the concerns on it, and turned it into a really great game. And unfortunately, if you start looking up information on this one, there's still too much baggage around the original release that wasn't very good. And that's a shame because I got in on the second edition. I think it's a delightful game and too many people didn't give it a second chance. Completely agree. I think it's a great game. I, I really recommend it, especially if you can get it for $7. 
Oh, my goods. I think being both of us know this one, I'm going to take a swing at this one. I think it's a 1B or 2B. I'll go 2B. Yeah, I'd go 2B too. It's a 2B. Yeah, 2B too. It's a light 2B, but yeah. It's a little heavier than like the ones of the world. Yep. The next game I got a chance to play was one that was my game of the year last year. And man, I love playing this one. Any chance I get. And this is a game that I brought with an agenda of getting it played over the course of the weekend. What I did not expect is that my train allergic friend, JJ, would pick that and go, oh, I really want to try that. <laughs> okay. Well, did he just sit out in the second half? He didn't play any train links. Only did the, <laughs> yeah, he only played the canal let him part. Just do boat That'd links. That'd be funny. So, okay, guys, I'm done. I'm done now. This is good. <laughs> so the game we're talking about is Brass Birmingham. It's the new 2018 release by Roxley Games, designed by Gavin Brown, Matt Tolman, and Martin Wallace. Brass Birmingham is really an engine-building game based on the original game of Brass, now known as Brass Lancashire, where over two phases, you're building up a bunch of industries and you're connecting rail links to try to create goods and ship those goods to make the most amount of income and thus make the most amount of points. It's a devilishly clever game of trying to combo everything together where I make an industry that I'm then able to provide coal to somebody else who then flips it and scores for me and or fill the market up. And I'm a big fan of it. So I pulled it out, played it, and I proceeded to absolutely be a great teacher and get completely rocked. I did very poorly. Right. I did very poorly. But um, actually, what's funny about it is I did really well in the rail era, and I timed it out perfectly, where coming out of the canal era, I took a loan and I shipped some stuff, basically stuff that cost nothing. So at the start of the rail era, I was the first player, and I was sitting on a big mountain of money, and I had coal out on the table, and I had beer out on the table, so that right away in the start of the rail era, I was able to just start cranking out double speed rails all over the place. <laughs> and oh, good. And that was great because rails really rails and beer are where the action's at in that game for sure. I came out like a house of fire. And during the rail era, the problem was is I did virtually nothing in the canal era and I was never able to recover from that. Yeah, you got to You got to get ahead because you got to get a good income generation going there. Yeah. And again, being the game runner and the game teacher, I spent an inordinate amount of time answering questions during the canal era and really wasn't able to focus to the level I would have liked on my own game during that. But oh, well, the upside is everybody loved it. Even our friend JJ, who hates train games, sat there alternatively gritting his teeth, gnashing his teeth and complaining and saying, this is a really great game. This is really clever. This is a really great game. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. Right. This one, I would rate a 3D. I, I would agree, too, just for weight. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty meaty. There's a lot of strategy there. But I will say the rules are probably harder than we're giving them credit for. We had played it probably three or four times when we realized there was a pretty important rule being improperly attributed that made the game open up a lot more. And I don't bring that up to shame you or anything, Mark, maybe a little bit. But The main reason I bring it up is just to say that there are a little bit of gotchas and it is a little bit confusing to really embody the rules. Yep, yep, for sure. There are a couple of gotchas and there are some cases. It's one of those that as I was explaining the rules, I did have some people going, snap, snap, can we uh, can we get playing? I'm like, whoa, 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 no, you really need to understand this. This is important. (laughs) Yes, I promise it seems like it's not good, but like we could start now, but it's I'm sorry, we're going to have to just listen. Just listen. Jake, what's your number one complaint with this game? Uh, I don't know. The different locations. The colors of the locations. Ask me how many colorblind people I was playing with. Three. Two, but good guess. Ask me how many problems they had finding locations. None. 
Zero. <laughs> I just know mine's mine's not the colors. It's that there's six random Middle England cities that I don't know really any proximity geographically to each other. And I have to now search through my card and say, okay, where is Northampton or North? I, I should I should know some of these cities who played <laughs> this game so dang much. But I just don't know where it is. And I know it's blue, but that's one of six cities. So I'm like, okay, it's not that city. It's not that city. It's not that city. Oh, there it is. Okay, I can't do what I want to do there. I feel like I'm playing the game through a filter of the cards and not using the cards to play the game. Sure. And I, I got to throw in a funny comment on that one. I get harassed frequently from Craig Taylor from the uh, the Train Rush podcast about our horrendous pronunciation, pronunciation. of some of the some of the English locations on there. So, Craig, we're going to send you a list of Minnesota locations and we're going to duel. Right. <laughs> That'll be fair. Completely fair. I uh, can't wait to hear a British man say Minnetonka. Oh, you gave it away. You gave it away. Don't, don't give him any more. <laughs> oh, there's better ones. <laughs> okay, cool. But yeah, Brass Birmingham is a wonderful game. I think it's it's a fun one. I'm always down to play it. Yep. Still best game of the year for me last year, for sure. All right. So I also got to play a train style game when I was down in Mexico out in the sun. Are subways trains? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. Sure. I mean, they run on rails. Why, why would they not be? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll go with that. They call them cars. It's train cars. I'm not disagreeing with you, Jake. I just, I, I guess I'm I'm flabbergasted that you, you wouldn't think that. But anywho, I played Metro X, which I believe is one of my games of the year from last year, designed by Hisashi Hayashi of Okazu Brand. And we've talked about this game a whole bunch. We both love it to death. What you're doing in this game is I've started saying that we're contractors bidding on whether or not we can finish out the city's plans for their subway system. And the way that this happens is it's actually a roll and write game, but it's technically a flip and write game where we flip a card, we do something, and then at the end, we count up all our points. I played this game three times with, or maybe even more than that this week, with about six to eight people each turn. And it was great to just sit down at a table out there by the sun and by the pool and just say, hey, who wants to come play? I'll teach you. It's no big deal. Oh, can I join? Is it going to slow the game down? How many can this handle? And I was like, it can play any amount, up to 99 people. That's not completely true. Why is it not true? Because of the rush for the end at the end goals. I mean, if you've got a whole mess of people right. going for those oh, things. Yeah. So I think I think you could accommodate a larger number of people the same way if you just doubled up like the first two people to complete that route get the big right. reward. And that's and that's fair too to just give two people. But to be candid, we just always we played up to eight, I think, and we just didn't change the rules. I don't think there's anything in the rules that actually changes when you get tire player counts. No, none at it all. It says one nope. to 99 on the box. So, but yeah, it, it did get a little bit where it's like, oh, getting something early is very important because you get an extra two victory points. But we played a whole bunch of the Tokyo and the, uh, Mark, I need your help. What's the other city? Osaka. Osaka. I was going to say Omakasa. I was like, that doesn't <laughs> sound right. No, Osaka. Osaka. Yeah, we played a whole bunch of those and it was, it was wonderful. However, the reason why I bring this up is I am running out of sheets of paper. I was going to ask you about that because you I know you own a laminator, Jake. What? what I just what, keep on forgetting to do here? it. I don't know. I just keep on forgetting to do it. And the, the main thing is I don't want to have to start carrying. I haven't bought the dry erase pens on the Internet that I've been meaning to. Mm -hmm. They've sat in my Amazon cart for a whole bunch of times, but I just keep on not buying them. So I'm going to buy the things. I'm going to laminate it because I am getting to the end there and I need to have some just in case I want to relaminate some stuff. So. Yeah, get on that one. That's an expensive one to replace, given what it is. 
Right. Yeah. It was so loved. A couple of friends reached out to saying, hey, where can we buy this Metro X game? I'm like, it's kind of hard. It <laughs> yeah. should be about $20. And if you're in Japan, it'd be 2,300 yen. But because we live in the United States, if you want to buy it from a U.S. company, it's like 35 bucks. They're like, that's mm-hmm. really expensive for what it is. And I was like, yep. But you can find it on Amazon.co.jp for 2,347 yen as of today. I've never tried ordering thing from Amazon.co.jp, so I don't actually know if it would work or not. Interesting. Hey, uh, I, I do got to kick in. I got a box Gum Road in the mail yesterday. Woot woot. What'd you get? We all know what Gum Road is. Gum Road is actually the storefront for Oink Games. I was very happy to see a box with a bunch of Japanese writing on the outside. Woo! I actually ordered stuff for my wife. She decided that she wants to give a bunch of her coworkers copies of Nine Tiles. So I ordered m- multiple copies of Nine Tiles. Lucky duck. Yeah, while I was doing that, I actually picked up a copy of Kobiakawa while I was making the order. Sweet. So you have you you have them all now. I do. Yep. Try if there was any other ones that I didn't have access to, I would have ordered those too, but that was that was the only one on the Gumroad site that I didn't currently own. Through that along with that, also got a copy couple copies of startups. Yeah, I get it. I can order startups here in the US, but since I was already paying for shipping and it was already coming, what the hey. Go for it. Just go for it. Japanese games. Funny we should mention that. I also had a chance to pull out on Sunday when everybody was very tired from a lot of gaming and maybe not at their level best in terms of stability. I pulled out Tokyo Highway and got a chance to play it. Tokyo Highway is a dexterity game based around building freeway overpasses and underpasses and trying to get rid of your cars first. The neat kick is that if you knock something over, you have to give that many parts to the person whose stuff you knocked over and and you have to fix their stuff. And oh, by the way, if you knock some more stuff over, then it just keeps on cascading. Pretty short game. And I realized over the course since the time since the last time we played it that we were actually playing it incorrectly. Yeah, I'm excited to hear the clarification because right. It made a big difference. I kind of was throwing this game. I wasn't. I wasn't throwing away. I think it's a great little experience, but I was like, this isn't much of a game. Yeah. So the way we were playing it was that anytime you went over or under somebody else's road that you got to put your car on that road and the game is over when you're out of cars, you win if you're out of cars first. It's actually not how it's played. You only get to put your car on the road if you're the first person to go over or under a road. Oh, So that really slows it down and makes it a lot more strategic. So it's like, well, I could just go and dive underneath this other road, but somebody already did that. So so you get to score if you go if you're the first to go over it and if you're the first to go under it. But if somebody's already taken that one, then suddenly now you have to pivot and go somewhere else. The other thing we were playing wrong is that you can actually branch and go to the ground at any time. It just and you get to put a bonus car on it if you do go to the ground. So you use the yellow little cylinder to make a branch. You put one to the ground to get rid of an extra car and the other one up over somebody else's to get rid of multiple cars in a turn. Really neat. Yeah, that, that, that'll make it a lot more interesting where you're kind of chasing each other. Instead of building up these big spaghetti junctions just because you can cut over eight things. Yeah, exactly. So spot. Uh, the game was a lot more strategic, went quite a bit longer, a lot better thought out, and uh, it was really fun. Now, one of the players really strongly dislikes dexterity games and noped out of it really quickly, but eh, there you go. What are you going to do? It's a dexterity game. I like dexterity games. I am just as uncoordinated with my big old sausage fingers as everybody else, but I, I find them fun. It's fun to just be bad at something. It's not something I want to play all the time. 
But man, once in a while, it is fun to pull out a dexterity game and just laugh about it. Well, yeah, and this one's absolutely beautiful, too. We've posted a bunch of photos of it on our Instagram, so please look at it. Yeah, it's it was really, really cool. So apparently this was actually the weekend of playing Japanese games for the most part. We love Japanese games. I know you got a chance to play some Oinks also. I did. So I brought six of them, one being one that I'm not going to talk about right now. But I did get my hands on a copy of Troll. I figured out how to subscribe to games when they pop up on the BGG market. Thank you to I can't remember who specifically gave me that tip, but it's awesome now. And I was able to get a copy of Troll for eight dollars. I love Droll, man. That's a fun game. I'm excited to play it. Yeah, I'm excited to play it. I just had to wait to actually play it until I had my own copy because it, it won't count for my shelf of shame if it's your <laughs> copy. Mark, you know? Of course, that's how it works. No, that's not how it works. You're crazy. So I was a warehouse manager, not an HR manager. I'm HR, Mark. Um, moving forward, because everything's in money. Moving on. Deep Sea Adventure is another oink game that I absolutely played the crap out of this week at my friend's wedding down in Mexico. So we had a couple of diver friends there. My fiance is scuba diver certified, so she's always a big fan of this game. And what you're doing in Deep Sea Adventures, you're a bunch of little scuba divers leaving out of your submarine. I don't know why it's a submarine, not a boat. And you are going up to steal some treasure. But what I love most about this game is it's a little push your luck game and you can totally trick people to dying underwater with you. Oh, 100 percent. If you ever commit. Yeah. <laughs> But what is so great about this game, and I'm not going to speak too much on Deep Sea Adventure because we've talked about it a bunch in past episodes, but what's so awesome about it is it's just such a beautiful package on the table. Everyone would stop by when we were playing this kind of in the main central area being like, oh, what game is that? I really want to play that. What is it? That's so cool. Where can you buy these? All these interesting conversations that people normally don't ask when you're playing a game like, oh my goodness, it just kind of looks like a regular card game. Art's charming and oh my goods, but the Deep Sea Adventure and the Oink package just really draws people in and just to make it such a beautiful package. Yeah, as you see these crazy little tiles making a path down to the bottom of the sea spread out on the table, and it doesn't look like something you can immediately grok out as being a game. It, it's beautiful, and it, you, you haven't seen anything like it before, and that one right. will always have a special place. That was my very first Oink game that I've ever got before. I even knew what they were, and I'll always have a special place for that one. No, I agree. It was fun. It was fun playing it with the sound of the ocean in the background. Yeah, I would recommend. Definitely. It kind of adds to the games of places things that you always try to do. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, well put. One of my Christmas presents I finally got to get out and play and pull it off my air quote shelf of shame. I asked for this for Christmas for no other good reason than two reasons. Number one, it's the only Simon game I like. Oops, did I say that out loud? I did. And it has miniatures that serve no purpose other than player markers. But dang, they're cool. And I'm talking about the Grizzled Armistice Day Edition. We woot both woot. we love the Grizzled. We don't like cooperative games, but we love the Grizzled because it ain't really. We a love game. the Grizzled. I got it as a gift and I asked for it just because it has these really cool miniatures of the Grizzled guys in there that serve your little markers on whether you're in the mission or not. And I have been dying for an opportunity to pull that out. And fortunately, everybody I was with this weekend knew how to play that. And we were able to get up and running really quickly. Or so we thought. (laughs) (laughs) The Armistice Day Edition is the newest version of the Grizzled that has that and it has the expansion in it and it has a campaign mode in it. Okay, interesting. What is different about it is the fact that the normal cards are rolled up as part of the campaign. You pull it open and you just go, hey, we just want to play the Grizzled. Where are the cards? Uh, Oh, maybe they're in chapter. 
Oh, yeah, here they are. They're in chapter one. So you open them up and it's all the grizzled cards, less like the trap cards. Okay. And it gives you some theme reading in about how, you know, you're all excited to go off to war and this should be done quick and we're going to be home soon. And then you play through a pretty easy chapter one that doesn't have traps in there. Great. Then it says, here are some more cards. Add those in. Now it makes the deck bigger and it's a longer mission. And by the way, this was one of the bloodiest days in French history. And you play through that. Then once you complete that, it adds you add the cards with the traps in. I thought that was super clever. Just adding in this little thematic nugget along with just ratcheting up the difficulty and the rules knowledge just one step every time through. You know, the grizzled isn't that tough. It wouldn't have been that hard to just learn it right up. Right, right, right. We already knew how to play it. But the thing I thought that was interesting about that approach is I think there's a lot of games that could be taught that way. In fact, I've always believed that that's the best way to teach 18xx is to just make it more campaign based. And here's a few rules. Play this little stock market game. Now play this little tile laying game. Now let's merge the two together. Now let's add these other things to there. And then after three, four plays, you've learned how to play it along with a very thematic introduction to it that's not quite as dry as most of the 18xx stuff is. So that was the one thing that jumped out at me is I thought, boy, that's a neat way to introduce that game. And I think there's a lot of other games that could be introduced that way. Right. And I think that'd be neat. However, I bet you I'd be so bugged being like, where the heck are the dang cards? Like looking through the rule book to try to see where to find it and just play the regular edition. That was super confusing. There's no doubt about that one. I spent a few minutes thinking, "Uh oh, I lost a deck of cards when I opened this thing up. But where are these things? Oh, gosh. Well, and I think so. We both very much are big fans of the Grizzled, but it does one of the worst jobs combining the expansion rule book with the base rule book. They should have just completely rewritten the rule book in the expansion. Yeah. And that's what they did in the in this version of it. It just is the expansion rule book. If you just start right. fresh with that one, that's that's the rules now. Right. Because it was so confusing because then I also still use that great little player aid thing to show you what's happening on each turn. That's like a big coaster. Mm-hmm. But it is like what it says we only get two here or something i can't remember the specific difference and i was like no that's wrong ignore that but it's good for everything else and just it it feels kind of incomplete in that way so i actually am considering in the arms stay version the other thing it does you get um i forget what they call them but they you get some spiffs if you like either win or lose like if you lose you actually get to like kick a card out of the deck and if you win you also get some perks that you get to use like you know once per game you get to exercise some special ability where you can lay an extra card or something like that got it yeah it really added a some neat flavor to it and beefed the game up quite a bit and by the way we won Woo! that's great that's pretty rare in the grizzled so right you know i was happy about that that we got to play it we won funny story though because of the confusing way that it was set up completely misunderstood how we were supposed to set it up that okay you put together this trials deck and you put together 22 cards and you deal them all out of there basically what happened is i dealt out all the cards then i put 22 into the trials deck and then the uh the deck that's sitting on top of the tombstone or whatever that thing only had like five cards into it so like after round two we're like oh crap i guess we lost wait how's that possible what the heck i was supposed to deal the cards out of the 22 not after i dealt that out oops Come on, Mark. Come on. <laughs> hey, it was Sunday, and that was after three solid days of playing, so I may not have been at my sharpest. Just to give the little moguls rating, what would you give the Grizzled? <sighs> the Grizzled. Uh, probably a 2B. Yeah, Maybe I think I'm going to give it a 2B, too. Maybe you 2C, know. but the issue is you can't discuss the tactics. Right. So it, it you is, have It's to... pretty reactionary. Right. And it's just like, I'm sorry, I can't play that. It's just, it's how it is. 
But the rules aren't that confusing. The only thing that is confusing about it is the fact that the rule books got smooshed together, at least in my edition, now that you have the fancy one doesn't have this issue. So there can be some rules ambiguities there because just the rule book is bad because it's spread between two different rule books, the base and the expansion, which we highly suggest the expansion. Yeah. So my recommendation is, man, get the Armistice Day edition. Those minis are cool. The combined rule book is cool. The campaign stuff is cool. And you can give your old copy to a friend to introduce them to the joy that is the grizzled. Wonderful. The joy of World War II bayonet charges and a whole <laughs> World, bunch of Maxim yeah, guns. World, World War I French time. life. Yes, that joy is obviously. I'm starting to listen to Dan Carlin's hardcore history World War I thing. Ooh. And so I'm about like five hours into it. And I am very much looking forward to playing this after and kind of trying to see. I mean, it's not going to it's not going to really feel any different, but. I'd love to talk about World War One and just play a game about World War One. Yeah, no, that was a dandy. That was one of my favorite ones. Cool. That sounds awesome. Well, right flavor. we had other plans to talk about stuff, but guess that's going to get rolled in the next episode, eh? I think it's going to have to. So <laughs> it's funny. Gosh, it's just actually... a bunch of chatty Cathy's. I know. We did not plan on setting out to just do nothing but talk about games we played this entire episode. But you know what? It's all good. That was fun. They're good games, Mark. Right on. So I think that wraps it up for tonight. Thanks for listening, everybody. For the Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark Teske. And I'm Jake Klaffenstein. Good night, everybody. Good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klaffenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.